Well, good morning. Good to see everyone here. I want to welcome everyone who might be new here today. It's a special day. I mean, every Sunday, I guess, is, is certainly a special Sunday, but uh, today we have a recognition today with Mark Cunningham, and we're going to, um, at the end of our time together, uh, celebrate some of what God has done in his life and get to recognize him formally. But this is a great day to talk about worship. And we've had a great time of worship already today. And our hope and prayer is that you, as a follower of Jesus, worship at home, worship driving in the car, worship at school, find ways to respond to who God is and what he's doing in your life. And so we get together as a church well, it's like harnessing a bunch of horses together. We just collectively do what ideally we privately do. And so we worship in prayer, singing, giving, and opening up and responding to God's word. And so today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. And though the word worship is not in this text, at least in the English translation of this text, uh, the Greek word for worship is here, and it affords me the opportunity to just talk about a message that I've entitled, The Privileges of Worship. I think there's a lot of privileges. Now, let's be honest before we even jump to the text, but sometimes people disagree with what's the right way to worship, at least publicly. Have you ever heard the term worship wars? In, in any given church, there's always debates controversy over the right way to worship, what kind of music do you use, uh, a number of these types of things. And, and this is not new. In fact, this has been the case since the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. Let me just give you an example of that. I want to quote uh, your best friend and mine, Cyprian from the third century, a bishop. I know you're sick and tired of so much about Cyprian all the time, but this is what he said about musical instruments. And by the way, spoiler alert, he was not a fan. All right, this is what he said. He said, he, the musician, endeavors to speak with his fingers, ungrateful to the artificer who gave him a tongue. These things, instruments, even if they were not dedicated to idols, ought not to be approached and gazed upon by faithful Christians, because even if they were not criminal, they are characterized by a worthlessness which is extreme and which is little suited to believers. Now, I'd like to go ahead and say apology to all of our band members, anyone here who plays an instrument. Uh, I did not write that. This is our friend Cyprian from the third century. And I bring that up just to say that even in the 200s, there were debates over whether you should play an instrument in worship or sing a certain way or a certain style. As we go throughout the history of the church, here's just a brief survey. Gregorian chant came into the church, you know, the da, 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 you know, all that kind of, you know, one note deal. And so, certainly people started adding harmonies to that, which was a no-no in, in the hearts of many people. You don't add harmonies to these songs. Fast forward to the Protestant Reformation. You have a man like Martin Luther who wrote wonderful hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Now, some people say that he pulled some of these folk tunes from the bars and sang them at church, but whether he did that or not, he was singing new songs that people objected to, even in the Protestant Reformation. A few years later, John Calvin, the other pillar of the Protestant Reformation in 1540, he declared that only psalms should be sung to one another. So if you're going to do appropriate worship in the church, you just sing through the psalms together, and that 
is appropriate, and therefore a division happened between Luther and Calvin. Fast forward to the 1750s, the, the Wesley brothers, Charles and John Wesley, wrote new hymns that taught theology, and this called struggle with some church leaders. You fast forward to the late 1800s here in the United States and what was considered the Sunday school movement, this idea that we're gonna gather as a church outside of the corporate gathering into small groups where they would not just fellowship and study the word, but sing together and new songs are being sung and people objected to that, thinking that some of these new psalms were way too feely, way too subjective, not objective enough about theology. Fast forward to 1920s, jazz came into play. In fact, there was a pope in the early 1900s who, who declared by edict that the piano was forbidden in worship. Again, apologies to all piano players. Fast forward into the 1970s, you have the Jesus movement that brought about the use of, of guitars and drums and, and bass and, and all these other instruments. And again, another controversy ensued. And even up to the present day, there's still debates and controversies over what, what's the right kind of music? What's the right way to worship? Now, I'll tell you my own theory in this. My own theory is that whatever music you listen to that helped you really connect with Jesus for the first time, whatever the worship music was that helped you to connect the dots into the reality of Jesus, that, that music buries itself into your heart in this really sentimental place. And that's not a bad thing, but we have to be honest to just recognize that all of us, me included, we have preferences when it comes to worship. We have biases when it comes to worship. And we should admit that all of us are short-sighted when it comes to what we think is the right way to worship. Let me just go ahead and tell you, especially for those of you who have traveled around the world and you've seen other cultures worship the same Jesus with different time signatures and different types of instruments and different rhythms and even harmonies. I promise you that one day when you get to heaven, you are going to be shocked that they're not just singing Just As I Am and Chris Tomlin songs. You, you may need to know that now, that there's gonna be worship of all different types from the nations and the tribes and the languages and the cultures that all come to bow at the feet of Jesus and worship him. I, I love what Bobby Smith says, our worship leader. He says that good theology leads to great doxology. That's a sign that, that he learned early in his ministry and it hangs on our on our wall backstage here. And it's a good reminder that it's ultimately about good theology. Who is Christ? What has he done? And how does that transfer into how do I respond in my worship to him? Today, I wanna to take you to the original worship war. And it was found in Hebrews. These were people who grew up in Jewish households who grew up hearing how important it was to go to the temple, to offer sacrifices, to keep up with the Sabbaths and all the holy days. And then now because of Christ and what they heard about his death on the cross and resurrection, now Hebrews uses this stunning word to say that the old covenant is rendered obsolete because of the new covenant. And many are tempted to fall back into those old patterns. And we tend to do that, don't we? We always want to fall back into the what more than the why. And as they're tempted to do that, the writer to the Hebrews is writing to them about the privileges they have in this new covenant through Christ. 
And that's what our message is on today, the privileges that we have in worship. And to do so, he's gonna contrast Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. We'll get to that in just a second. But let's look at it together. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. And I wanna read this for you in its entirety. So if you would, let's all stand together. Let me read for you Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. This is what God says. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they cannot cope with the command, if even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, all right, here's the takeaway. If I lost you, here's the takeaway. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let's show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And that word service, it's the same word in the Greek that we get the word worship from. So this is a text about worship. And let's pray that God would use it in our lives. Father, we come to you this morning and once again ask that you would just bless the hearing, the teaching, and the eventual applying of this text into our lives. God, I don't know what people walk in here with, but I know that your spirit can speak to every single person here in a way that helps them to understand what it is that you have for them today. Lord, open our eyes to the beauty of this word, and we'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The author here is giving us a contrast between two mountains, and, and the one assumption he has is that the people that he's saying this to understand, have a working knowledge of the Old Covenant, or we might say it like this, the Old Testament. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to shame any of you about this, but let's just be honest, most of us, even those of us who follow Jesus, a lot of us don't have a working knowledge of the Old Testament. So there's things that he makes reference to that they would get right off the bat. We struggle because we don't understand it, and this is one of those examples. Because he's contrasting two mountains, Mount Sinai 
in verse 18 and then Mount Zion in verse 22. Why is he doing that? Well, in 18 through 21, he gives seven descriptions of this Mount Sinai, saying things like, it can be touched, there's a blazing fire, there's darkness and gloom, there's a trumpet that's blasting, there's the sound of words, uh, there's even the sound of words so that people begged that it would stop. Now, what is he talking about here? If you were to read your Old Testament, particularly the book of Exodus, chapters 19 and 20, this is a story where God is setting his people free from slavery in Egypt. And he takes them through all these miraculous encounters and they are rescued from Egypt and now they're on the way into the promised land. Three months into the journey, God stops them and speaks to them from a mountain. We call it Mount Sinai. Only Moses was allowed to come to the top of that mountain. And he gave Moses the law, the Ten Commandments, to give to the people. And see, this is what you might not be thinking, but when that happened, there were all these extraordinary events. Thunder, the sound of God's booming voice, the blast of what sounded like a trumpet. It said that the, the mountain actually shook like an earthquake. Now, the author of the Hebrew is going to use that in just a second. It shook. It was a frightening experience. And he's reminding them, the people in the Hebrews, the old covenant, when the law came, came with terror and fear. But recognize what you have in this new covenant. And then he gets seven descriptions for that. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, myriads of angels, the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We think about their names being in the book of life. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. Notice he just uses his first name, Jesus. Does not mention his title, the Christ. Maybe here he's symbolizing the example that Jesus set in his own death and life. And who is he? He is the mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So notice the contrast is happening here. Mount Zion, heaven, if you will, the presence of God, supersedes Mount Sinai. The new covenant supersedes the old covenant. Jesus as a mediator supersedes Moses as a mediator. And maybe just from the experience of all this, he notices that in when the law was given, it was a frightening experience. Even Moses said, God, stop speaking. We're scared to death. And notice in Mount Zion is God patiently, lovingly through Christ saying, come in. All are welcome here. Come in. Now, our God is not schizophrenic. There are not two different gods, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. But he's letting them see the privileges that you have of God in this covenant on the other side of the cross in the resurrection of Jesus, saying, God saying, come in through my son into my presence forever and ever. You know, that's the hope of the gospel, is it not? That we live in a sinful world. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. It's a sinful world because we caused it to be a sinful world. And the world that we have is not the world that we had before sin came into the world. And the world that we have right now is not the world that we will have praise the Lord, one day when Christ comes back. And the rescue plan that God has given is through his son, Jesus Christ, who has reconciled us to the Father through his death on the cross and through the power of his resurrection, that our sins might be forgiven, the Spirit of God could come and live in us, 
and we could be his children. That's what we call the gospel, the good news. And this is the text that reminds us that now, until the day that he comes back, you have this privilege, privilege of worshiping him. Now, when we tend to think about worship, we tend to think about church, songs, prayers. But worship actually might be said uh, to mean worth-ship. In other words, worship is declaring something, some person or something, to be worthy. So while you may think worship's only about church services, there are actually lots of examples all over the planet every single week of worship. For instance, let me give you a great example. This is what worship looks like uh, right here. Now, this is worship. Think about this. A, well, why are they Raiders fans to begin with? But anyways, they're Raiders fans. What would convince, what would convince a middle-aged man to get up on a Sunday morning and think, you know what, I'm gonna dress like this today. What, what convinces a man to do that? You know what it does? Worship. Worship. See, in his mind, his team or all that comes with cheering for his team is worthy of his worship. And he worships through these exuberant displays of it. People worship all the time, all kinds of things. People worship their work. Uh, when they just work and work and work and work and work, work, always achieving, always striving, but never taking time to rest, never taking time for their family. Everything else is second, always to their work, 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 work. You know why? Because you worship your work. You actually worship, worship the affirmation you get from your work. But you worship your work. Beauty. There are people that are obsessed with how they look, always appearing to be perfect. And the reason is because you worship your beauty. Worship is simply ascribing worth to something. So the whole notion of Christian worship is that we ascribe God to be worth all of our lives. Jesus one time interacted with this woman who, though the text doesn't tell us this, was most likely worshiping being loved. She was chasing it in all the wrong places. That's what people tend to do. She was a Samaritan woman. So she was married before, but now she's been with a bunch of guys who she's not married to, living with one now, and Jesus confronts her about this sin in her life. And it's interesting that she wants to talk about worship. And, and by that, she wants to talk about the right way to worship. Jesus, she's a Samaritan. Is the Samaritan way to worship the best or is the Jewish way to worship the best? Is the, on this mountain the best or on this mountain the best? And she wants to get all these technical things that all of us do to avoid the real issue of her heart. And this is what Jesus said to her. A time is coming and even now has arrived when the true worshipers will worship the Father in two things. What are they? Spirit. What's the other one? Truth. Spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now that is worthy to be discussed on and on. Just a few comments True worship is certainly empowered by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, but it also produces the works of the Spirit in our life. For instance, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, all these fruit of the Spirit. When we properly worship, we walk out of here exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. So if one of the fruits of the Spirit is to be more loving and you walk out of here and you're not more loving, then you haven't worshiped. If the point of worship is to help us to be more self-controlled and you're not more self-controlled, then you're not worshiping. Spirit and truth. We're not looking for just good feelings with God. God has revealed himself through his word, through his son. 
And we wanna make sure that we worship him for who he is. Worship is about revelation and response. God reveals himself and we respond to what he has revealed. Spirit and truth. And the altar to the Hebrews wants to remind his people, even challenge them, say, hey, you, why would you turn back to the old covenant when you have these amazing privileges in the new covenant? Notice what those two privileges are in this text. I think they're found in 28 and 29. The first one is this. You know what we get? The privilege of worship, number one, we receive an unshakable kingdom. We receive an unshakable kingdom. Now he's challenging them, go to verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Who is speaking? God is speaking through Jesus. That's what Hebrews one tells us, that Jesus is God's final word. We did a whole message on that 18 years ago when we started the book of Hebrews. But do not refuse him who is speaking, God through Jesus. Then he says, for if those who did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, talking about the Old Testament generation who was warned at Mount Sinai, much less will we, so this is today, escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. God is speaking right now through Jesus. Why would you turn away from what he's done in Christ? And his voice shook the earth. Remember when it said the mountain shook when the law was given? The author takes that to say that when God spoke the law, the earth shook, and then he quotes from Haggai, And this quote, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things so those things which cannot be shaken may remain. He's saying that this world is a shaky world. I grabbed uh, this snow globe out of my daughter's room this morning without asking her, but I used it. And it's a New York one. I love that. Reminds me of our uh, Johnson Ferry Uh, 10-year partnership that we just began with the city of New York to plant churches in New York City. So that's something to pray for, but just, you can use any snow globe. But if you think about it, what's a snow globe do? Obviously, you shake it up and things get blurry. And in a lot of ways, this this is what our life looks like. Blurry, chaotic, we don't have a clear vision. And what this text is reminding us is God is shaking the earth. God is shaking the things so that ultimately all the things that are not permanent, all the things that are perishable will one day go away and what is left? The Empire State's building. Just kidding. What is left? It's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. There have been a lot of wonderful superpowers on the earth, nations, whether it was the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, uh, the Byzantine Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire, even America and its superpower. And, and we should pray for our nation and be salt and light in our nation. But let me just remind you of this, that all nations come and go, but the kingdom of God is forever. And you might go, well, what's that do with worship? You know what it has to do? If we properly worship Jesus privately and publicly, we are putting ourselves on sure footing. Understand that God is shaking all the things that are perishable, putting us on things that are permanent. What's the privilege of worship? Well, one is that we receive, we don't achieve, we receive presently, not just in the future when we die and go to heaven, but right now, we receive 
an unshakable kingdom. Here's the second thing I think this text points us to that we receive. I mean, the privilege, excuse me. Our privilege is this, we serve God with gratitude. We serve him with gratitude. He says in verse 28, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let's show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and all. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. What he's saying is that when we worship God, we don't, we don't worship God to earn his love. We don't worship God so that he'll do things for us. We don't worship God so that we feel better about ourselves or have a moving emotional experience. We worship God with gratitude. Why? Out of reverence and awe. Why? Because he is a consuming fire. Now, when you think about consuming fire, that at least at first thought, I thought, well, this has got to be about judgment. That's not very comforting. But when you look at the Old Testament, fire wasn't just the sign of judgment. Sometimes the fire was also a sign of God's presence. Remember when the pillar of fire led them through the wilderness? Sometimes fire is symbolized by a sacrifice that God offers. The priest would offer a sacrifice and the fire and the smoke goes into the nostrils of the Lord. Now we're using analogies and metaphors, but God, God accepts our worship because he is a consuming fire. But we're to serve the Lord. Worship, literally the word is worship. Worship the Lord with gratitude. And this gets at maybe some of the why behind why we worship. We don't worship simply, again, so that we feel better about ourselves. Because then the worship is about you, not about God. We don't worship merely to have sentimental feelings. Now, sometimes in worship, we're taken back to sentimental things. I mean, maybe, maybe we sing a song from back in the day that you love, and there's just a sentimentality about, man, I love that song. But we have to be careful that even that doesn't necessarily mean that we've worshiped if we just like a song. I mean, that would be the same. You could say the same thing for any song on the radio you like. I mean, whether we're singing Just As I Am or you're singing Journey, right? Lying beside me, here, here. You know what I'm talking about? Like that, that could be worship, right? But all that is is sentimentality, emotion. If it hadn't put your eyes on Jesus, it's not worship. Worship also is not just teaching theology. Like this is some class. True worship will affect the mind the heart, the hands. I wanna end this teaching time by quoting Tim Keller. Seems appropriate as he went to be with the Lord a few days ago. And uh, massive loss for us on this side of heaven. Massive gain for heaven. I love what he says about worship. I'll quote this. It's a long one, so bear with me, but I think it's worth it. Merely learning a truth about God is intellectual education, not worship. For example, I can know intellectually that God is good, but still be worried silly about something that's coming up this week. If the morning sermon is on the sovereignty and goodness of God, I haven't worshiped unless that truth descends from my mind and touches my emotions and my will. I worship then when I realize I've been trusting in my own abilities, not the sovereignty and goodness of God. When I pull my affections off the other things I've been trusting in, which is why I'm anxious, and put them on God, 
I will be touched emotionally. I may cry, I may not. It depends on what kind of personality I have. But the truth will affect my emotions and my will. My will is affected when I decide to change the way I handle that threat next week. Worship is grasping a truth about God and then letting that truth strike you in the center of your being. It thrills you, comforts you. That's when the truth has moved from left to right brain, from mind to heart. On the spot, it will change the way you feel, and from that moment on, it will change the way you act. What a good reminder. We're to serve God with gratitude. I know that on this particular day, I am so grateful for a lot of the people that lead us in worship. We have some incredible men and women leaders in this church uh, who lead us in worship. But today, as many of you know, is a day that we're recognizing someone who is retiring, uh, Mark Cottingham. And in just a few minutes, uh, Mark and Bobby and myself are gonna have a conversation about worship, just last a few minutes. Uh, but as they're coming to the stage, there was someone who wanted to be here today to say a word of affirmation, but could not be here because of a prior ministry commitment. Uh, but I want you to hear from him via video, and then we'll have a conversation. So let's check this out. What a privilege to share a good word about Mark and Rebecca Cottingham. I'll never forget visiting in their home in Dallas, Texas, when we were searching for a new music minister here at Johnson Ferry. And when I walked into his study in that house, there was a big old picture of Auburn's Pat Dye coaching an Auburn football player on the sidelines. And I thought, that's the kind of music minister I want Johnson Ferry to have. I like that. And we hit it off right away. They were led here October 1st of 1987. That's a lot of years of faithful service here. And how can I share in just a minute or two my appreciation for Mark Cottingham and the difference that he has made in so many of our lives and the impact that he has had on the whole culture of John Superior Baptist Church. But I'm forever grateful. We served in that upfront seat of leading worship for many years together. And what a joy to see his heart for God and his desire for the Lord to be glorified in all of worship and to see how that got multiplied many times over through the years. And to see what happened in the life of our church as contemporary worship just took off with explosive growth and there was that gradual decline in attendance in traditional worship that Mark has led and to see his incredible spirit of being so supportive of Bobby and what was happening with contemporary worship while using his great gifts and leading the choir and the orchestra and our majestic service in the sanctuary. What an incredible godly spirit in all of that. And it's really helped for this to be the beginning as the time of ending his ministry comes to uh, into play at this point in history of the Johnson Ferry that we're beginning a new day with such a smooth transition in the life of Johnson Ferry. So I just want to say thanks. Thanks to Mark and Rebecca. What a great team they've been in leading worship here at Johnson Ferry. Going to be greatly missed for the contribution that you have made. But I want to thank you that when you came on this staff, October 1st, 1987, that we've been able to be a team. And now you've been a great team with Clay. 
and you have contributed so much for the life and the spirit and the Christ-centeredness of Johnson Ferry Baptist. I'm forever grateful. Mike Cunningham and Bobby Smith. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Um, and in, in just a second, yeah, y'all can, you're going to stay in just a minute, so sit down. All right. So uh, uh, we're going to recognize you in just a second. I want to have a moment. Um, you know, a lot of, I was thinking about this in this particular service, Mark. You know, some, some people here don't know you, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way. I think that's a testament to your leadership. Like, you've always been about promoting others, and, um, and you've made an incredible impact. They know you as the whole, Oh Holy Night oh, guy. guy. Oh Holy oh, Night oh, guy. Oh, I, I don't remember that guy. Yeah, that's right, that's right. But you've, you've had an incredible run here, 35 plus years of ministry, made a huge difference. And uh, uh, if you didn't know, tonight at six, we have a big um, concert in our sanctuary and have a, uh, it's gonna be a great time to honor the Lord, but thank him for Mark, so I hope you come to that. But we just wanna have a little public conversation here, thinking about worship. So Mark, you've been doing this 35 plus years. As you approach worship, what are some of the things that you value as you think about us as a church worshiping together week in and week out, what are those things that run through your mind as you think about this is why we're doing what we're doing? You know, I value worshipers, when worshipers can have an authentic experience of worship when they encounter God with life-changing results. I, uh, I love it when we can express our God, ourselves to God in an expressive way, focusing our heart and our mind on the Lord in an engaging way. Uh, all in together. We don't, hope you don't come with a sense of evaluating the worship or giving your critique, but really our worship is a team sport where we can all participate together. You're not the audience. God is the ultimate audience of one. And, you know, I said this earlier, it makes me smile and kind of roll my eyes a little bit when people are worried about change, talking about change. And, you know, our worship style, formats, times, uh, it's been shifting around and changing about every five minutes over the past 35 years at Johnson Perry. I'm okay with that. I don't really know any different. I like it that way. And the Bible does not say, thou shalt only sing songs we already know. Um, the Bible says in 40 verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. And many will see and fear and put their trust in God. And, and um, I love working with people like Bobby and others who think that way. And their priority is illustrating Jesus and not self. I mean, that's been a way I've approached it. I know it'll be the, the Bobby way going forward for sure. Bobby, same question to you. Um, what goes through your mind as you're thinking about why are we here? What, what are we doing and why are we doing it? Tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's really good is to agree with your pastor so it doesn't hurt that he's kind of already uh, stolen the thunder, if you will, by pointing to John chapter four, um, because that's such an awesome look when you talk about um, the woman at the well and you get that beautiful picture of Jesus like telling you, like straight up explicitly telling you what God desires in worship. And I love it. You point out like the, the first thing that people sometimes want to do when we're like figuring out our preferences, our desires, worship, and especially when it's inwardly inclined, we want to skirt to like the what's, right? What mountain? Is it Jewish, Samaritan, whatever it is. And he just cuts right to it. He says, God is spirit. God is spirit. And he's seeking such people who will worship in spirit 
and in truth. And I love that. I think that's been kind of a guiding line for me for a really, really long time. Um, just in assessing, I mean, truth, we, I mean, we love to sing the truths of God. We just do. You, I mean, I watch it with, with, with y'all as we sing, and you just start getting this foundational truth of who God is. People are getting just on fire. It's exciting to sing God's word and the truth of what he's given us back to him. Um, but I think the wonderful, I think it's like a miracle that happens with the spirit side of things. Because the Bible's so clear that we're dead people. I mean, we are dead people apart from Christ. And what he does, it's miraculous, it's mysterious. He literally brings us to life. The resurrection power of Jesus like takes a hold and we come to life. So I think when we're worshiping in spirit, we should look like alive people, right? Passionate, impassioned with the love of God and just alive to that. And so to me, that just helps kind of drive all that I would hopefully do because the what's are gonna change all over the place, but the why is not gonna change. Mm, That's right. So this is the day of not just recognizing Mark, but also in a way of a transition from a leader to another. I mean, we, you, know, you kind of assumed the title of executive pastor of worship months ago, but with you retiring in the next week or two and you assuming that role full-time, Bobby, I just wanna give y'all a chance to talk publicly in some of the ways that we've talked privately, especially affirming you, Mark, and so grateful for you. So Bobby, I'm gonna start with you. You've been here for almost 12 years, um, serving under Mark that entire time. So as you think about Mark and the impact that he's made on you, what, what have you seen in him that you are so appreciative of as someone who leads worship? Seen a ton. And that's the thing that's crazy. I, you know, I, I did not plan to be here this long. And it's a testimony just of God's faithfulness and of your leadership that I am. Um, you know, I realize I've been here for about a third of your ministry here which is really exciting for me to think that I sat under you for that amount of time. Um, and I could talk about things like your way to handle conflict, your way to assemble a team, your way in excellence with all that you do and kind of planning and preparing and singing, you know, like the way Mark can sing. Um, just, no, thank you. That's it. Um, there's just a lot to be said, but there are two things as I thought about this question that stick out to me that all of you should know, which maybe you already do, but let me just reiterate it. The humility that you have as you lead, which is not to say that you think, you know, like down on yourself. It's that you are really putting first things first and you are, um, you are, you say this thing to me, you say, I'm just this boy from Centerville, Alabama. He says that all the time, this like kind of just never forgetting kind of just it's such a gratitude, exactly what you're preaching about, a gratitude towards worship and a humility that translates as a leader, which he there's plenty of people in ministry who are not that way. Um, but this leads right into what I think is the most important part about who you are, and that is that you're just a man of God who loves Jesus, mm. who loves Christ with your whole heart, and you keep the why before all of us on the team, and I hope it's something that I will carry on to the fullness of my ministry career, that I've just watched you love Jesus publicly and privately, and I'm so grateful. Yeah, that's good, Amen. Yeah. Mark, give you a chance to publicly think about Bobby here. What, as you, if you've watched Bobby for close to 12 years, what have you seen in him that gives you great hope for the future of worship ministry at Johnson Ferry? You know, I have been in the trenches for 11 years, almost 12 years with Bobby, and 
And uh, you know, it doesn't take but about five minutes to realize the guy's uber talented. I mean, he's creative, over the top. Is that a word, uber talented? Sure. I like it, it's a markism. Um, creative, over the top, and uh, he's just a great guy. However, the thing that I'm most excited about, about this guy serving as the lead pastor at this address is that I know personally he loves Jesus at the very core of his being. He loves Kelly Tucker and Amy Lee and has a passion for really following the leading of the Holy Spirit going forward in your life as, as a believer, as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor at Johnson Ferry. And folks, he has the it factor with Jesus Christ up front driving the train. Thankful for that, for sure. You know, um, yeah, yeah, it's great. Love it. All the clapping. La- last question to you, Mark. So being a pastor has certainly its blessings and its burdens, and we have an incredible team of pastors here. We have an incredible team of men and women leaders of this church who love Jesus, and I can brag on all of them. There is something unique about a relationship between, you know, a lead pastor and uh, worship pastor, just because you've become the face of the place. You know, you guys see us, you see me and Bobby, or me and Mark, every single Sunday, whereas you may not see all the rest of our pastoral team. So it's just a unique situation there, and I think the relationship is unique. So you had a 30-year run with Bryant, 30 or plus, 30 plus years. You and I have had the privilege of working together for four years, which I've loved. But as Bobby and I, you know, kind of take the baton into the future, what advice would you give to us as a team as we think about worship in the future of Johnson Ferry? You know, well, first of all, I would say that the lead worshiper is not me, it's not Bobby, it's really you, because you're the one setting the pace, setting the vision, and, uh, you know, it's really our job, it's Bobby's job to flesh out that vision, to flesh out your hopes for Johnson Ferry. And you can send that check to me later, if you will, for that. <laughs> you know, but. Yeah, uh, but I guess I, I, I really feel like I would encourage both of you guys to not let your role as pastor, as worship pastor, define who you are. You know, I know God has assigned Rebecca and I meaningful job opportunities here, a lot of years, and I'm grateful for that. I've always wanted to do the very best I could for God in the time that I get to be in this role. However, as meaningful and as good as that is, it's just stuff we get to do for God. I'm always gonna be Rebecca's husband. I'm always gonna be a believer. I'm always gonna be Sarah and Andrew and Benjamin's dad. I'm always gonna be a father-in-law to Madeline and Elliot. And now, a granddad, I'm Pops. <laughs> to, uh, I got the thing to say it here. I'm Pops to a new grandson, Reeves, over in Birmingham. Thankful for that. But really, guys, that's a legacy that'll stick going forward. Pray that for you. Yeah. Well, we're, we're just so grateful for you, Mark. Just this transition has been so healthy. Hopefully that uh, what I experienced with Bryant, you know, Bobby, you were experiencing with Mark in a wonderful way. And I think this is just a beautiful picture of how it should be. It doesn't always happen like this. It doesn't have to happen like this. But to have a younger seasoned leader who's um, learning from, and then when the time is right, to carry the baton into the future, that's a beautiful picture. And uh, we're grateful for both of you guys. Um, I'd love to pray for both of you and then uh, just stick around for like a minute or two and we wanna recognize Mark in particular. But let's pray for this team going forward. Father, thank you for the privilege of worship and thank you in particular for these two men and how they lead us to your throne each and every week. 
Lord, we are so spoiled rotten with what we get to do every week, and we consider that a privilege, Father. Um, I pray your blessings on each of them in this season of transition, and uh, just ask your blessings on us as a church, um, looking to Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, um, considering him who endured such hostility against sinners. Lord, always putting our eyes on Jesus. May that be the goal of what we do. So grateful for each of these men, for your blessings on them. Uh, We love them and pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Bobby's gonna take off, but now we wanna honor Mark Cottingham. All right, so hold on. So, um, 